Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Larry Webb, the CEO and founder of The New Home Company, a publicly traded home builder based in Southern California. Larry is the first guest on the podcast from the home building sector, so I'm very pleased to have him in the discussion. This is the last episode of Season 3 of Leading Voices. In our three seasons, we've now built a library of over 50 discussions with leaders from throughout the real estate world, from tycoons and CEOs to public officials, architects, planners, and real estate technology gurus. We'll be starting back up with Season 4 after Labor Day, and I'm working on our guest list for the upcoming season. For loyal listeners, I invite you to go back through the library to listen in on conversations that you may have missed, and I also welcome your ideas and feedback for Season 4. You can email me at matt at I also want to thank the sponsor of Season 3, JLL, as well as my colleagues at Terra Search Partners, who both made Season 3 possible. Thank you, JLL, for your sponsorship and leadership around helping with guests and the mid-episode conversations with members of your team around the topics of many of the episodes. Thank you, JLL. For more information on JLL, go to jll.com backslash voices. So, I enjoyed the conversation with Larry, which was, as always, as much about leadership as it was about the lessons we learned throughout listening to his career, in this case in the home building sector. Thinking about conversations in recent episodes with Bobby Turner, Keith Oden, Bill Bayless, and other leaders, Larry's is another story about both his personal journey up to becoming a CEO and also about really honing in on the concepts of passion, purpose, and having a highfalutin goal about his business, home building, which he calls a noble enterprise. No more highfalutin word than noble, but it's one that I fully agree with, and we've heard not with that same word, but the same concept throughout the conversations on the podcast. We similarly also have a noble goal for leading voices. And I do not feel that we're near finished exploring the real estate industry and its impacts on our world through the stories of our leaders. In that light, I'm really looking forward to coming back the end of the summer to these conversations in season four. Enjoy the conversation with Larry and look forward to seeing you soon with season four of Leading Voices in Real Estate. Thanks. Larry, you're my first guest. We've done 50 some odd interviews. You're my first guest in the home building sector and I'm trying to tour through the real estate world understanding different sectors from the eyes of its leaders or their leaders and understanding both careers and understanding the sector and where the business is at today. So that's what we're going to get to talk about today. I always start asking people kind of personal background, but before I do, maybe tell me why you think I'm talking to you. (laughs) Why should we be spending an hour talking to you and people listening? Uh, Kind of an elevator speech background if you can. Sure. Well, you know, I've been in the home building business and led companies for about 30 to 35 years in a leadership position. And uh, I love being a home builder. um, And I feel as if I um, am a very good communicator and spokesperson for the industry. Um, And along with that, I have always prided myself on honesty and um, uh, the ability to admit what works and doesn't work, Mm -hmm. uh, both strengths and weaknesses. So the idea would be, you know, I always would want uh, 
anyone who's listening to believe and know that I'm being very sincere, but also to provide insights that not every leader in our industry would do. So hopefully at the end of an hour, if somebody would listen to this program, they would understand me, my leadership style, but also our industry and what works and what doesn't. And let's let's go back and talk about you and your background and how you got here. You mentioned planning school at Harvard. Briefly, where did you grow up? What kind of what kind of life did you have as a kid? Did you have a white picket fence? And what what pathway did you find that got you to planning school? Well, I had a great upbringing. Actually, I was um, and am an adopted only child who grew up in a suburb of Buffalo, New York. I literally spent the first 18 years of my life living in a house on a street named Pleasant Avenue. <laughs> you can't be more middle class than that. Um, we, um, uh, I, I really think it was a terrific place for a kid to grow up. Um, it, uh, we, we were proudly middle class. Mm -hmm. And um, I was the first person in my family to go to college, but it was always something that we knew it would happen. Um, I was a your stereotypical um, underachieving student who loves sports. Mm -hmm. um, I played soccer, basketball, and baseball. And um, I wound up going to a small state school in New York, called within the State University of New York system called Cortland State or State University of New York at Cortland. Uh -huh. My tuition was $272 a semester. And there were two semesters where I, um, where we had a lot of trouble coming up with the, the money and I had to talk my way in until I um, uh, could pay it off over the year. So, we were certainly not affluent. My parents sent me ten dollars a week to live on. Wow! But I never, I never wanted for anything. Mm -hmm. And I was a history major. Thought mm -hmm. I would be in the back of my head go to law school. Uh, graduated in 1970, and was in the first draft class, um, um, uh, surrounded by the Vietnam War. Um, but I. My draft lottery number was 341, and uh, I was, um, over the course of my four years of college, I became somewhat disenfranchised, first, certainly with the war in Vietnam, but also mm -hmm. with the legal profession. And I wound up um, at graduation becoming a high school teacher in Western Massachusetts, I taught high school social studies in a little town, a New England village called Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Uh -huh. And I spent six years of my life as um, an idyllic uh, social studies teacher who coached the local sports teams. And uh, there was a time in my life where I thought I would be a high school teacher forever. But over the six years, and I love teaching still love teaching. I could tell. But over the years, uh -huh. I um, decided that uh, maybe I should teach in college. Uh -huh. So I got the idea to go back to graduate school, 
and I went to Northeastern University on a fellowship. I taught undergraduates in the day, and I took two years studying for um, uh, a PhD in history. Mm-hmm. And at somewhere along the lines, I decided I was just tired of teaching, and I um, applied to Harvard to get a master's in city and regional planning um, for a very odd set of circumstances. Um, one is I had just finished The Power Broker by Robert Caro about Robert Moses. I'm in the middle of it right now, and uh, it comes up in conversation about once a week. It's funny. Amazing book. It's a great book. I don't believe there are, you know, I think you could walk to any shopping mall in America and no one would know who Moses was. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what a, a city planner really did, but I love the idea of, you know, doing what he did. So, um, so I wound up going for two years and getting a master's um, at the graduate school of design. Mm-hmm. And, that was, I graduated in 1980, so it was uh, nearly 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to this day, uh, I get introduced as having an MBA from Harvard. Mm-hmm. And no matter how many times I tell people I have a planning degree, they hear MBA for some reason. Uh, for all your listeners, I hated the MBAs at Harvard, okay? I used to take classes there once in a while, but... You know, we 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 uh, we believed we were going to serve a higher purpose. Uh, we were probably a little naive at the time, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was a very for for a, a, a small kid from Buffalo uh, to spend two years at Harvard was a great experience. Oh, it's unbelievable! It, it's interesting. Uh, long-term listeners, of the podcast will know. I, like Jack Benny talked about his mother-in-law, I talk about my daughter throughout the podcast, and my daughter has uh, moving back to the Bay Area in a month in order to do planning uh, school masters in planning at Berkeley, and we had a long discussion about planning school versus an MBA. It, there's a lot of idealism in, in my kid. Uh, so there's a lot of business sense too, but I think you they have a different purpose in those degrees, and people do mash them up, and they don't know what they are at the end of the day. Oh, you got a master's. I think that's true, and you know, in most um, certainly in the home building industry, there, there isn't very much of an emphasis on um, graduate education, mm-hmm. um, but. I, I absolutely want to meet your daughter someday because I like that um, where she's coming from. I can tell you this: for at least the first three months of my first year mm-hmm. at Harvard, as I was walking across the common, I always expected a security guard to stop me and say, "Excuse me, but we didn't really accept you into <laughs> this this program." We accepted Larry Webb from Iowa, and um, we, you just happened to get <laughs> I, I had the great imposter thing going big time uh, for a while. But it, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I've made many lifelong friends based on um, the educational experience, and I loved it. I, 
best thing about education is your relationships. And maybe that's the best thing in life too. But it, it was a wonderful experience. One. I will tell you this. I still wasn't quite sure what a planner did. Mm-hmm. And when I got out of graduate school, I had put my way through graduate school coaching soccer at Newton North High School mm-hmm. um, and borrowing every penny I could get from from Harvard. Um, and when I graduated, uh, I had a job. I got a job doing market research and financial analysis with a hotshot consulting firm in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And um, for two years, I did market research, got on a plane and was an expert, mm-hmm. um, got off the plane and wrote up a report and kind of never saw anything. And I really didn't fit in to the culture or the organization. Literally, it was people, the men in D.C., D.C. was a pretty formal city in the early 80s. Men wore three-piece suits and had briefcases. And I had two Sears corduroy sport jackets. I used to wear plaid shirts and knit ties. And I had a pair of topsiders. And I had a backpack, um, not a briefcase. And I just never quite fit in with the firm. I, it, it, um you know, that cultural thing really has followed me through most of my life. Yeah. And it'll be a common theme. As we talk. In terms of. But, but it's interesting for me. Um, it was when you could still smoke in offices. And uh-huh. I, I was never a smoker, but I remember early in my consulting career, I was called into one of the senior partners' offices, and he. Uh, spent, he was giving me world advice on how to be successful. And uh, he was a Princeton grad and there were Princeton banners all over and his graduate degree. And he spent two or three minutes setting smoke, getting his pipe set up <laughs> to smoke so he could. And I had my notebook and my pad and paper and I was waiting and for the great wisdom to help me be successful. And he, as he's puffing away on his pipe, he looks at me and said, I have just two pieces of information that will make you very successful in our organization. And I write down, you know, success, one, two. And he looks at me and takes a deep breath and uh, was um, fancied himself as very intellectual. Mm-hmm. He leans forward and he says, number one, cover your ass. And number two, state the obvious. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm literally writing this down thinking, <laughs> and then I look up and he had already turned his back to me and was typing away on his typewriter. And I realized the meeting was over. Oh my God. And I, I was wondering do you say thank you for this advice? <laughs> and I skulked out realizing he was trying to uh, send a message to me. Uh-huh. And it was a good message. And the message really should have been, you need to get a new job <laughs> in a hurry. Okay. <laughs> totally true. And, and I wound up doing that. After two years, I moved to Denver 
and I ran the uh, an economics department doing market research at a firm that did um, architecture, landscape, landscape architecture, and planning, and and I was the market study guy, uh-huh. and we had five or six employees. And what I liked about that was that I got to see things actually done. Right. Most of the most of prior to that, almost all my work were just reports that went in books, and I never saw anything. Right. Um, and what I learned about the consulting industry was uh, twofold. The first was the more clients you had that wanted you, the more job security you had. Yep. And in in my case. I loved the home building clients. The retail and the office guys primarily just wanted a market study so they could, because the bank asked them for a market study. But home builders in the early 80s, um, they really wanted your advice. And most of the time they were investing their own money. Most of the time they were borrowing and writing you know, their own name on and securitizing everything. Right. And these people became my friends and I worried about them. Um, and one day, one of my biggest clients offered me a job. Uh-huh. Uh, and then it was in a very unusual fashion, uh, but I wound up taking it. And that's how I got in the home building business. It's interesting also to think of your comment about the top, the, the, the two pieces of ice from the pipe smoker, because it fits all consulting work. And, you know, headhunters are consultants, so I think about this all the time. Cover your ass and state the obvious. And a lot of people in my business just do that, right? The answer is tell them what yes. they want to hear about the person that, and follow their lead on their vibes about the person. Don't argue, don't think, don't add value, don't be pushy on the subject because you want to get it done and you want them to like you. And uh, advice is a different thing than that, ultimately, if you could do it right. Well, you, you know, um, when you're talking about the recruiting business or you're talking about getting the right get for yourself or for somebody else being like the right fit at the right job, mm-hmm. it is something that nobody teaches you in college. Right. I mean, most, most people, when they're interviewing someone, are trying to tell them how smart they are. And most people who are – nobody walks in and says – I'm only okay and I'm a little lazy and I <laughs> I have sort of a negative attitude, but <laughs> other than that, I'm a perfect person for your company. <laughs> hey, two or three observations to the things you said, and then I want to hear about your home building career because that's why we're here. But sure. w- one comment is it, it actually isn't the person as in and of themselves as an objective body come right is there are they going to be successful or not and i think of the sports analogy it's who's the person who's the team how do they fit and you put them all together are they going to make a difference and it's not just them right so it's hard to interview to figure out the system and figure out the fit in the system and figure out how they're going to contribute and that's what where success is going to come from Ultimately. Makes sense. It yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And and the other interesting thing in 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 our work, as I interview people, you know, different than what we're doing now. But when when I interview someone, I try to disappear, 
And it, you, when I started in this, I wanted to establish my credibility. Now it's already established, so it's easy. So I could just kind of be a vehicle just to soak in whatever's going to happen in the interview. But I very studiously try not to make a judgment until three quarters of the way through. I'm just collecting data, collecting data, collecting data. And then I'll take that data to make some decisions, but I push back the um, feeling of, okay, I, in 30 seconds I could take the scope of someone because it just I, I think that's not true. So you get into the home building business. You're in Denver. Your client who you had an affinity for hires you. What firm was that? And let's march through your home building career, maybe getting to John Lang because that's the uh, first. Anyhow, tell your story. My first home building uh, job was with a company called Mission Viejo Company, uh-huh. and they were they were originally all California people, uh-huh. but they had purchased thirty thousand acres in South Denver, um, and were just beginning a master plan development called Highlands Ranch, mm-hmm. which today is build yes. out or close to build out with over a hundred thousand people living there. But when I when I was first hired, the Mission Viejo company had put in, who were owned at the time by Philip Morris. Mm-hmm. So they had very deep pockets. And the idea of time value of money was not a concept anybody worried about. So uh, Philip Morris, through Mission Viejo company, um, put the uh, did the political entitlement and built roads and parks. They built a 54,000 square foot rec center, indoor pool, outdoor pool, full gymnasium before one house was built in Highlands Ranch. Um, They then proceeded to build three or four housing programs that the California people had been very successful at, at Mission Viejo, California in Orange County, where they all came from. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, people in Denver didn't, weren't too interested in their houses. And so I was hired to come in and to try to give them advice on what was their mistake. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, when I presented my report, there were, it was, you know, it was an interesting process. There was five men on one side of on one side of the table, five on the other. I was at one end giving the report and at the far end was the CEO uh, who uh, came in last, was uh, about 50 years old and I thought in my mind he was like 100 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me that was ancient at the time. He was sitting clipping his nails while I was giving my report, all right? Mm-hmm. And and um, the basic premise of the report um, was that they didn't build houses that people in Denver liked. And in Denver, people like shake roofs and front porches and uh, siding. And they had built pink stucco and red tile roof that had worked in, in California, but it's a different place. And when the report was done, um, all of the men in the room looked to the boss who leaned back and in a very low voice said to me, so 
you're saying that we just spent $74 million and we built the wrong houses. And everyone leaned forward and then all 10 of the men on each side of the room looked at me like a tennis match. Right. And I, I said, well, that, that is true, but you can fix it. You know, you've got the infrastructure here. It's a beautiful place. And everyone looks back at, at the CEO and he said, so you're telling me that we built the wrong houses? Everyone looks at me and I said, <laughs> well, yes. That is true, but you can fix it. If you don't have that much, you can you can get rid of these. You can bring on new stuff. This is this is going to be successful. You just need to listen to what people in Colorado want. And he pauses and he leans back and he said, "Why don't you come to work for us, and you be the head of product and you be the head of marketing." Mm. And all 10 of these people look down at me and I pause and I say, well, there's only one problem. And he says, what? And he said, and I said, I do market research and I certainly know a lot about product, but I don't know anything about marketing. There's a big pause. Everyone looks at him and he leans back and says, marketing market research, do you want the fucking job or not? <laughs> and I sat there, <laughs> I sat there and I thought for a second and I said, sure, I'll take the job. <laughs> and that's how I got in home building. Oh and my God, it was a great a, story. It was a great, I mean, it was, I had never heard anybody swear before in a meeting. It was like the greatest, he, you know, it was a great opportunity. And for three years, I, um, worked in a, an incredible environment. It, within a year, um, Mission Viejo was the fastest selling um, project in Denver. And in 1986, uh, I started getting a lot of phone calls from uh, recruiters. Mm -hmm. uh, we just had a baby. Uh, my wife had a good job. But this one particular home builder kept offering me a job. And one day I finally thought, geez, I never heard of them. But, you know, they were offering so much money that I didn't know how I could not take it. And when I say so much money, I had no idea how much it cost to live in California. It was, I was quite naive in this whole process. Mm -hmm. And... um the home builder was, uh, at the time, their name was Kaufman and Broad. And um, I uh, eventually said, um, sure, I'll come out and I'll, I'll meet with you. And I went out to L.A. and met with the whole Kaufman and Broad team. And um, uh, they said they liked me. They had five divisions at the time. They were small. Mm -hmm. They'd like me to come and be the number two person in L.A. and then uh, be ready to step in to run a home building company. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my wife didn't want to move. And I thought, but how can we not move? Uh, this is such a great opportunity. And after about six months, I finally told 
Kaufman and Broad, I would do it. And I commuted for six months from Denver to, um, to Westwood. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, um, um, I basically was thrown into the business head feet first. And at, at the time Kaufman and Broad was growing like crazy. It was 1987. The market was on fire. And, um, I was there five months and they told me, um, that they'd like me to move to Orange County and take over. They'd like me to take Friday off, move to go down and stay one night at the Disneyland hotel Uh on Friday, take my daughter and my wife to Disneyland on Friday, Saturday to find a place to live. And Monday to go to the Orange County and Riverside office, fire the president and the ops guy and take over. And <laughs> yeah. I looked at uh, the CEO and I said, well, um, that's uh, that's a really interesting because it's what I want to do. Let me think about it. And uh, I'll talk to my wife. And he looks at me and says, uh, I think maybe you have something we're not asking you to think about this. This is what we're telling you to go do. So I, I, my wife had moved to California three days earlier. The boxes were still unpacked. And I told my wife, we're moving to Orange County, the bastion of Republican sentiment. And we were lifelong Democrats. And she looked at me and said, I'm not moving to Orange County. I like it in L.A. I said, you've been here three days, honey. <laughs> she said, no, I'm not moving. So, so we, I commuted another three months on the 10 freeway, the five freeway and the 91 freeway. And it was great. And, uh, I was thrown in the deep end. Um, the market was expanding 87, 88, 89 were boom times. Uh, every mistake I made, we were able to raise prices and, and move forward. And we grew significantly. And by 1990, we were, we were building seven, 800 homes a year. The market started to slow down. And, um, at Kaufman and Broad at the time, they, uh, shut down their San Bernardino office and had me take that over. And the, and uh, we were just off to the races. Mm-hmm. Hey, let me ask you a question. And, so now sure. you're running a home builder. You're the market research guy. So coming from a market research perspective and now running the business, what was the big leap for you and the big change for you? Well, uh, first of all, uh, you should understand, Matt, I am the least mechanical human you have ever met. Mm-hmm. My wife... Uh, fixes things around our house. I, I never for a day thought I was going to be a home builder, but, but what I am and what I've always been is a coach. And I've always understood the idea of putting teams together. And, um, and what I found was that home building was the ultimate team business. There were something like 34 different disciplines planning and architecture and construction and customer care and sales and marketing, market research. 
all different kinds of um, disciplines and uh, finance and land acquisition, um, you know, entitlement. And what I came to a conclusion very quickly was that what I needed to do was surround myself with really good people and then create an environment where they could really do good work and work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so it became less about necessarily the, the physical act of the homes. And, and I guess if I would say if I really want to answer your question very clearly, it probably, there were two dominant factors in, in my background. One is I really had been a great teacher. Mm-hmm. So I was a good communicator and I was very good at listening. And second, market research taught me one thing, if nothing else, and that was, understand your consumer. And so I wanted a culture that people valued the consumer's ideas, really listened. And the home building industry, whether it's architecture or planning, whatever it is, is filled with egos that don't listen very well. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to knock down those egos And I wanted to create an environment where people said, who are our buyers? What do they want? What do they desire? And then how can we do that for them Mm -hmm. in any price range? So that's where I was always, you know, that's, that was my basic foundation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and it worked. It was very successful. Um, I used to go to our models on Saturday and Sunday and just sit in the family rooms and in jeans and a golf shirt and listen to people walk in and critique what we did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just wanted to hear what real people thought of our homes. Mm -hmm. And I always learned a lot and I wanted other people in my company to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so the, the whole concept of teamwork and working together and getting the right people and the right fit, but all around this concept of um, the customer uh, has always been kind of mm-hmm. the driving focus. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like the, the, if you balance those two together in the right way, you're going to get somewhere, except right around the time that you're describing, you probably hit the SNL crisis. So talk about... Yeah, yes, yes, we did. That was, <laughs> Back uh, that to- was a wake-up call. <laughs> yeah. And, and let me... It's funny, you know, you have history here, but from 87 to 90, um, there, it was an interesting process. I was growing like crazy. Probably my ego was out of balance and I was totally hadn't given much thought to the cyclicality of our industry. Yep. And all of a sudden I woke up one day. We used to have, do you remember when people used to camp out for housing, uh-huh. there were things like that. I mean, it was an incredible time and it was a good time to learn the business, but that came crashing to a halt, crashing to a halt. And I remember um, my daughter, I used to take my, my 
I have two daughters. I used to take them to our grand openings. And when people would get selected to be able to buy our homes, everyone used to cheer. It was this exciting time. Wow. And I remember, and we would serve hot dogs and have balloons and have, you know, have um, face painting for the kids. And, you know, my, my children, before sports, their first activity was going with me on weekends to these things. And I remember we had in sort of mid 90, we had a grand opening and I have uh, my oldest daughter who's now 33 by the hand. And we are calling off people who said they wanted to buy our houses and nobody is stepping up. Right. And we go 30 names before somebody said, I'll buy a house. And my daughter turns to me and said, Daddy, what's going on? This seems different today. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and thought, you do not need a business degree from Harvard to know something has changed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it didn't just change. It changed in a heartbeat. It's okay? sentiment and changes that way, right? Confidence changes yeah. the moment there's a threat. Ebulence um, my, leaves. I. It was an amazing uh, period to be leading a company. And um, the good news was that um, I was in an organization. And let me tell you, Kaufman and Broad at that time, Bruce Carrots was the CEO. Chad Dreyer, who later went to Ryland, was the CFO. Mm-hmm. Every Monday, you got a phone call and you were held accountable. Mm-hmm. It was not an easy place to work, but it was definitely a place where um, you were held accountable. Mm-hmm. And and um, that experience and that accountability made me learn that you must react fast with to changing market conditions. Mm-hmm. And we did. And uh, I do, don't think I would have had the success in my career if I didn't have those Monday morning calls from Bruce that were like a sledgehammer saying, you didn't sell this week, what are you doing about it? Right. And, and we, um, I, I remember we basically said, if you did not have a sale in three weeks in a community, you had to make drastic action no matter what. Not because everyone wanted to tell you things were okay and they weren't. And so we responded mm-hmm. and, and we, we made sales and we brought our cash back in. And uh, along the way, I saw a lot of people in the home building business be in denial about the SNL problem. And the longer you waited, the worse the pain was. Right. Simple as that. It's interesting. A moment ago, you said the two principles of your career have been being a coach, listening, number one. Number two, listen to the consumer. I'm going to guess the third great lesson is go through a couple of recessions and figure out that both the balance sheet matters and the discipline matters, and it's not always going to be rosy. And you put those three things together, maybe we have the modern you. I don't know. Well, there is no doubt as a public home builder, which I was a KB and I am again, mm-hmm. that that is accurate. I, I would also say that 
cash flow matters more than profitability and that um, no matter what, you don't want to be over levered. Right. Okay. You, you want to, you want to be, uh, you want to, there are, will always be opportunities in recessions. If you have the cash, take advantage of it. Yeah. Um, uh, that was, those were great. Those were great uh, lessons. They, they really were. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I also really believe looking through our career, my career as a home builder, that, um, creating an environment where people can be honest about what's working and what isn't, um, is, is incredibly vital. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the home building industry is filled with older men, primarily white men with big egos. Mm-hmm. You don't name companies after yourself. If you have a small ego, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the reality and it's very seldom and, you know, I wound up having an ego at times myself. And it is very seldom that those people want honest feedback about problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right, Matt. And I wound up actually um, in, the, in 1991, I made a decision that I don't think anyone had ever done at Kaufman & Road before. I decided to leave the company and go to work for a smaller home builder. And the reason I did that was because I saw as their company grew and they were growing significantly, the role of the division president was being diminished. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to have more control, not less. And so I, um, I think I was the first division president at Kaufman and Broad who didn't leave who left voluntarily didn't get fired. Mm -hmm. And, and I did that because I, I I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. Uh, And uh, it's been somewhat of a lifelong journey of swimming upstream a little bit, but 19, I left in May of 91 and the recession was in full force. And I went to work for a company by the name of AM homes it had it was owned by an Australian home builder, but it was had Southern and Northern California operations, and I was going to be running all of Southern California, which I liked. Mm-hmm. And um, after one year, and we had success even in down markets, uh, primarily building in infill sites. Um, and then in 1992, AM Homes was sold to a company called Pacific Greystone, which was growing with an attempt to go public. Uh, and I stayed on for um, two more years. And then I went to work for John Lang Homes in 1995. Mm-hmm. And John Lang Homes was a British, 100% British company that had about a hundred million invested in the U S they brought me in as CEO with the, I with really the idea of helping them get out of the problems they were in. And they had bought a lot of land in the early 19, uh, around 1990 overpaid for it and were stuck. And they, they were looking for somebody to help them. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea, um, 
of being in charge. I also like this idea. At Greystone, the corporate office was in Burbank, California, and at Lang, the corporate office was in London. And my thought is the farther away from corporate I was, the more power and control I'd have. And I loved every second of it. Uh Hey, let me ask you a question about that. Uh, Two things. One is we're going to want to talk briefly about John Lang because I want to hear about the new home company. But the second thing is you're describing a dichotomy throughout the conversation of I want to be in charge. I want the boss to be further away. I want to run my division. And I don't want to be and I don't want to be one of those guys with egos who doesn't listen. But and I have an ego sometimes. So just talk about that for a minute because it's true and fascinating and you're not alone in that position. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting process. I, uh, you know, my growth as a leader um, is um, basically all self-taught. Okay, I mean, uh, and it really started with my roots of coaching high school soccer and basketball, and coaching my kids, mm-hmm. and watching teams um, go from being a group of individuals to um, to a real team. Mm-hmm. I also have worked in large organizations and then smaller ones. And when I look at successful organizations, it seems to me that um, that when organizations are aligned culturally and respected, that they have the ability to have success in good times and bad times. Where organizations are not aligned when things are good, everyone's happy, but when they're not chaos comes in. And I recognize pretty early in my life that I like to be in charge and I, and I, and I like that. And I have a joke. Now I've been running multi-division organizations really since 1995 at Lang. And by, the time we sold Lang in 06, Lang was up to, I think, 13 divisions in six or seven states. So we were, and we were doing almost 3,000 houses a year. Mm-hmm. So I would say we, we were a growing private uh, home building company. And I would meet once a month with the leaders of each division. I would travel wherever. So I was on the road about, uh, 40% of the uh, month. Uh-huh. And I would start every meeting met with the exact same joke and every meeting it would get the same laugh. And here's what it was. I would sit with the president and vice president of every division. I'd sit at the head of the table and I would say, I'm from corporate and I'm here to help. <laughs> and people found, you know, it because as a rule, I have fought my whole life, first as a division president, kind of against corporate just telling me what to do without hearing me. And then later as the corporate group, I fought the bias that, you know, this us versus them thing that occurs in organizations. Right. And I guess, I guess on the ego front, I would say that I have, two realizations. One is I, I like to be the CEO. I love to be in charge. 
But I also love and respect when the divisions and, and the corporate group work together. And so the only way that can happen is when I can listen and respect, first of all, get the right people mm-hmm. in, in the divisions mm-hmm. leading. But then second, when we are aligned culturally at what we do, and then I can let them go. And that's always been, that's always a challenge, mm-hmm. you know, in good times and bad, but it's a good challenge to have. And, and I'm very aware of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're describing awareness, you're describing consciousness uh, and intentionality around this balance between ego and management. It, it, yeah, so leadership and management right? as well. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, uh, and it's a push-pull sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is. Uh, but it's also fascinating. And if you want to throw in another dimension, markets are always evolving. Right. So things that work in an up market aren't necessarily the same things that work in a down market. Uh-huh. And, and the, more, um, the more information that you all have and the more awareness you have about where we are in the cycle, uh, I think the greater um, um, ability you have to succeed both in good times and bad. Mm-hmm. That's a fair deal. Although you never do know where you are in the cycle, you are aware there is a cycle. You're aware that the cycle will end differently than the last one ended, but you are conscious of that it's a cyclical business and how do you deal with it? Uh, Yes, yes, and yes. You're correct on all points. If you try to predict too much, look, we're at that moment now, right? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And it's going to be different this time. It always is different. You know, obviously, 07 and 08 were different than 90, 91, right. 92, or early 80s. Um, uh, but, you know, let me talk to you a second about the Lang story. Uh-huh. Because um, the, the Lang organization was 150 years old in London mm-hmm. and in England. They were large contractors. They built bridges. They had a housing division. There were five generation of Langs who had run the company. Um, And um, they really um, allowed me to strategically plot um, how to grow and help them exit the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, they trusted me and effectively, what I did um, was somewhat of a three-stage process. The first thing I did was I took all of their land that had been tied up in the early 90s, and I packaged it in one swoop, and I sold it to an investment group uh, in 1996. Mm-hmm. And then I, and the market was still tough. But I took that money I got back and I reinvested it in primarily Orange County uh, and closer to the coast. And the market, our timing was good. And by the end of 97, we were one of the largest builders in Southern California. Mm-hmm. So they, they allowed me to reinvest their money. They also allowed me to 
when I sold the previous investment, it meant a financial loss for year one, but they, they believed in what we were trying to do. And then in 1998, we merged with a company called Watt Homes, who was owned by Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs also wanted to exit the business. They hadn't been happy with their investment in Watt. And when we put Watt and Lang together, I didn't even get to sit on the board. It was three Lang members, three Goldman members. Mm -hmm. And it was, and um, we, effectively doubled in size we worked hard and by two end of 2000 we were one entity that was just on the precipice of starting to see some really good results Mm -hmm. and um in september of 2000 the goldman people and the lang people met with me and they said they had decided to sell the company and um, we went through a process where the combined entity, which was John Lang Homes, was going to be sold to a large public home builder. And Bray um, Watt, who had been the patriarch of Watt Homes, came to me and said, why don't you make an offer? You and Wayne Stelmar, my CFO, why don't both of you offer? Book value was $180 million at the time. Ray said he'd put 15 million in and I said, Ray, there's only one problem. And he said, what is it? I said, well, we're only 165 million short. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we, we wound up making an offer. We went out and got lenders to invest. Uh, We put some of our little money in, which we didn't have much of. And in 2001, we wound up, and we borrowed $135 million of the $180 million, and it had to be paid off in three years. And we, in June of 2001, we owned this new entity called John Lang Homes, and um, we were off to the races. Mm-hmm. Um, and we grew the business. We wound up selling three divisions so I could pay back the money earlier. And by 2005, we were again up to almost 2 billion in revenue and almost 3000 homes a year. And in June of 06, we sold the company for a billion, $50 million to the largest real estate developer in the middle East by the name of Amar. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that was June of 06, and we got an all-cash transaction. That was a good, uh, that was probably the peak and the height of the housing market when that deal closed. Perfect timing. and in, in my world, they give you a big mazel tov. It was a good mazel tov. And uh, it was, uh, we didn't know, though. As you say, you don't know when the market is. And mm-hmm. um, we we didn't. We had no idea we were standing on the edge of a cliff. Mm -hmm. We knew things were going to get harder, but we literally, um, you know, we we all stayed on with Lang and we worked for um, these new owners who were from Dubai. And we learned a lot about the Middle East and how they did business. Mm -hmm. I stayed uh, until 2008. 
But by 07 and 08, the market came crashing down. Um, and it, it was, you know, it was a tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Mm -hmm. And, um, by 08, uh, it was clear that, uh, my management style and the uh, management approach of, uh, the group from Dubai were quite different. And we decided to part ways, uh, and in September of 09, oh, and in uh, early 09, uh, John Lang Holmes went into Chapter 7 and then Chapter 11. And uh, the group from uh, Amar wrote off $1.8 billion of investment. Mm. Mm. Um, and in 09, um, I got the band back together again, got two of the original Lang people and one original uh, old friend who had run the Irvine company, and we started the new home company. And 09 was really the depth of the market. We thought it was the perfect time to um, start a new company. Yep. And, and again, we wound up hiring our first 30 employees were all ex-laying people. Most of them were self-funded for a year, uh, most of the people who started worked for free for a while until we got everything organized. But we, um, we took off in 2010. Um, we had attracted outside capital and we we're again off to the races. Now, a word from our sponsor, JLL. What comes before any achievement? Ambitions. Always. That's why we put ambitions at the center of everything we do. And why we always expect more. More for our clients. More from each other. More out of every single day. And we don't just recognize ambitions. We thrive on them. We are 75,000 people from every corner of the globe. United in our passion. To ask the biggest questions to go further, dig deeper, and to always deliver. Achieving ambitions powers us through our day, and that makes us different to other firms. It makes us speak up, reach out, and above all, stand out. It makes us each who we are, and it makes us all JLL. Now, back to our interview. We probably have 10, 15 minutes in the podcast, so I want to be cognizant of time here. But talk about the, the, the Larry Webb who came to start this firm, what you had evolved to because you knew your stuff. You had some money in your pocket. Um, so you're coming from a perspective of strength and lessons learned. So how conscious was starting this up and what, what advantages did that give you? Well, it gave me tons of advantages. Um, the Larry Webb who went to Kaufman and Broad in 1987 mm -hmm. uh, versus who was, you know, starting a young family and still living check to check was a very different Larry Webb from the CEO uh, in 2009 of the new home company. Mm -hmm. From a financial perspective, you know, I, 
uh, was in a much different position. My daughters were, were already in college or on their way to college. So I was a different position there. But the Larry Webb who came from Buffalo, New York and was, um, you know, underneath it all, a teacher and a coach was exactly the same guy. Mm-hmm. And um, what I found over my life and what I found from, you know, graduating out of planning school was that I really loved the home building business. I loved the team building business. And um, I had come to a conclusion which our staff, our team, both at Lang and at New Home Company, could recite, and it's as follows. I believe deep in my soul, and still do, that building homes for people is a noble thing to do with your life. Uh And along with that nobility comes a responsibility to always be getting better and to care greatly about your staff, your team members, and your customers. Mm-hmm. And that, that understanding of one, um, how important um, what you're doing is, how you change people's lives, and two, um, why you have to always be improving. Uh, I, I have a, I'm a very, very competitive person. And I'm competitive um, on a positive front because what we do in, as home builders and community builders, I believe, is so important. So the passion evolved, if anything. Um, but along the way, I also learned a lot of lessons. Mm-hmm. For, for example, I learned that no matter how good uh, someone was who worked with you, if they didn't truly care about their employees or their customers, it, they were the wrong people. Um, and for, for, for my organization mm-hmm. or for our team. And early in my career, I would have allowed people who were efficient or good at what they did to um, not be the right kind of people in terms of how they treated their staff or their attitude towards customers. Mm-hmm. But I learned over time that there was no, there were no compromises there. Um, I have spent a lifetime studying leadership and, and working on, on leadership within both Lang and new home company. And There is no doubt in my mind that um, if you truly, that I want to be around positive people. I want to be around people who care greatly. And uh, I want to be around people who love what they do. Uh, And I don't work well with other people who don't feel like that. Uh, It's not that I don't want to do well financially And I want other people to as well, but that can't be your driving force in my, in, in our company. Can't do it. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be about the pride of what you do and how you change lives 
And, um, you know, if people have an issue with that, then they shouldn't be in with me. So I think I have a lot better understanding of myself than I did 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. It's a theme of the podcast and, and I pull this out uh, probably half the time with people who, who are CEOs and run companies and start companies is, and you use the word that's the best word I've heard yet, but you use, use the word noble. And I, people get cynical about hearing that. I, I, use it, no, I, don't, I haven't used the word noble in my own company, but I think we have a very high calling in the world. And people might look at recruiting, for example, as a transactional business, and I look at it as a noble business. We're changing lives and we're changing companies. And it, it's a different perspective on what might be the same thing. But when you come from the place of believing it's noble, whether it's – and you push it to that extent – then you have a company that has purpose and you have two separate companies in the same industry, one with purpose and one with just a bottom line goal. They both successful. I, but I want to be at the one with nobility. I, I totally agree with you. And I picked the word noble intentionally over right. my career. Um, I, I can tell you, Matt, and I mean it so sincerely when I meet with our employees, uh, which I do a lot. I use the word noble, but I also use the word love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, home building is a pretty macho business. Mm -hmm. You know, half the people in the company work out in the field somewhere. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I am very comfortable talking to them about how important what they do is. And also about how much I respect and love them. Mm -hmm. What I have found is that in the organizations I've been lucky enough to lead, if that resonates with somebody, then they can, it, it really resonates. Mm -hmm. And you can have the most grizzled construction guy, but they still very much are proud of what they do and they want to be loved too. And you know, why can't and why shouldn't every company do that? You know, really, why shouldn't they do that? And so, um, you know, over the, over the journey of leading companies, I, I have um, been a lot more comfortable in my own skin about communicating those kind of what some people would view as soft cultural issues. Mm -hmm. I, I, I believe that if you can attract people who are, um, who, who believe, truly believe in what they are doing is important in the world, then they will also work harder, more efficiently, They'll work better, and they'll find tons more enjoyment in what they do. Um, you know, I don't ever want an employee to miss a kid's soccer game, or I don't ever want somebody to miss back-to-school day or anything to do personally. Um, and it doesn't mean I don't want people at work, but I I really do believe that the happier our 
team members are in their personal lives, the better they are also with customers and, and, and the, the less they are, the, the more it rubs off in a bad way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, most companies will tell you that they care greatly about their employees, but I'll tell you, I want to live it. Um, and we do it in a variety of ways. But one thing I do is every year we survey every employee. Well, it's a voluntary survey. Mm-hmm. Um, we get between 95 and 98% of our every employee. It's confidential and voluntary. Mm-hmm. I read every survey more than one time. And then I meet with every employee and tell people what I heard, what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And I meet with them together in groups by division or geography or corporate. And for me, it's some of the most meaningful meetings we have of the year. And I always learn things that we need to do better. Mm-hmm. So I, I love it. I mean, my, my real role in this world now is to attract the best people in the industry who really care. And you mentioned that many of your um, listeners are students or are people looking uh, at mm-hmm. the industry. I love that because I want every one of them who listens to this podcast to say, I'd be interested in working with that guy. And then my job is to create a culture and an environment where those highly motivated, really smart, good valued people do the best work of their life every day, mm-hmm. you know, and come in every single day excited about what they do and they get rewarded for it, you know, both, both, you know, uh, financially, but also emotionally. Right. You know, who, who doesn't want that? Right. And that's what I'm, that's my goal. Yeah, it's interesting. We we all want that. People don't know that when they're going into the work world that that's what they can get. They yes. you know, and there's that American comment. Well, if it wasn't work, they wouldn't call it work or something like that, which I've disagreed with yeah. forever. Uh, yeah. I'm going to guess you're going to get some phone calls after the podcast for people wanting to come work for you, but you don't won't have enough positions for our listeners to clamor to join the new home company. But hopefully, you know, our listeners understand the lessons of leadership where you've come to and bring that into their own aspirations within their own companies, wherever they may be. I I would say this because I enjoy more than anything else speaking to younger people who, um, you know, under 30, under 35. Mm -hmm. In today's world, I would call that younger who. Right. I, I don't believe. I think it's very hard today for young people to find the right position or the right job, uh, especially initially. Mm-hmm. But, but I don't think anybody um, who should take a job just for the money. And I definitely think that if you don't feel valued in the organization you're in, the, you should be thinking very seriously about trying to find the position where you would be. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I just know that there's no reason for anybody to be working 40, 50, 60 hours a week 
in an environment that they don't, you know, just love, really love, and aren't proud of everything they do. So, you know, think think of your business. You see so many different organizations, Matt. And, you know, I, I don't believe, for example, people leave organizations, quote, for the money. I'm not saying that financial compensation isn't important, but I, I think any study you'll see will say that's way down the list of reasons why people will change jobs. And way at the top is, do they see, are they proud of what they do and do they see room for advancement and do their, do, do they like working with their manager and are they respected? Mm-hmm. Those are really what matter. Um, and I, I want to be in an environment where we do that for people. Understood. Hey, Larry, I think I'm going to take that as a, as a wrap. I have many more questions for you, but we don't have time on the podcast to, to dive into some of the more, you know, where's the home building industry going, but maybe we'll have a part two at another time. Well, I love it. I, you know what? Thanks for even talking to me about this. And, um, I, I welcome uh, listening. You said you've had over 50 podcasts. I'm going to go back and try to listen to some of them. I, I really love the idea, Matt, and I appreciate you thinking about me. And uh, I really look forward to listening to more in the future. Good. Thank you very much. I'll uh, send you some recommendations of, of, of favorite ones, but um, we'll keep talking. And I want to thank you very much and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks a lot. You too. Thanks, Larry. Bye-bye. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com slash voices. That's jll.com slash voices. 